Hi everyone, welcome to The Lab Report, a podcast that will show you the inner workings of the clinical lab through discussions, interviews, and stories. Most importantly, you will see what goes on behind the scenes in the clinical lab and how it can impact you. Hi everyone, welcome back to The Lab Report. My name is Victoria Higgins and I'm a clinical biochemist at DynaLife Medical Labs in Edmonton, Alberta. Today, I will be talking about diabetes with Dr. Felix Lung, who is a clinical biochemist at Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto, Ontario. Hi, everyone. Most of us know someone who has diabetes, but do we really know how diabetes is diagnosed? So most people don't, and that's exactly what I will be talking about today. So imagine you live a healthy lifestyle, and one blood test result comes back, and you are told you have type 2 diabetes. What kind of questions do you ask? How did your life change now, and is this result accurate? So this actually happened to a patient not too long ago, and the lab played a big role in helping this patient. Before we start talking about the laboratory testing for diabetes, let's first talk about what diabetes actually is. Simply put, diabetes mellitus, which is its formal name, is a disease of high blood sugar. So after we eat, our blood sugar normally rises as the food breaks down in our intestines. Now this sugar rise will tell our pancreas to produce an important hormone known as insulin. Insulin is what helps our cells use sugar for energy, and eventually when the cells are happy with the amount of sugar they have, the pancreas will stop making insulin until the next meal. This is a tightly controlled system, and it helps us maintain healthy blood sugar levels. In diabetic patients, however, this system doesn't work well, meaning their blood sugar levels are not controlled well. So the two most common forms of diabetes are type 1 and type 2. Could you tell us what the difference is between them? That's a really good question. So in type 1, this is when your pancreas just can't make that important hormone insulin. So this type of diabetes, we often see it at a much younger age. The majority of diabetic patients, however, have type 2 diabetes. And in this type, we see it in people who have a long history of poor lifestyle factors such as obesity, lack of physical activity, and poor diet. And the combination of all these causes your cells to be unresponsive or resistant to insulin. And when this happens, the pancreas tries to pump out a lot more insulin, but eventually it tires out and it fails. So if our body uses sugar for energy, what is the issue with having too much blood sugar? You would think that with more sugar, that means our body has more energy to use, right? So that really isn't the case. And as the saying goes, more is not always better. Even with a high energy source like sugar, there's still an optimal level that our body must maintain to function properly. So when blood sugar is too high, it can actually cause very severe problems. A lot of the time, the issue with diabetes is that the problems are very sneaky and they're only obvious when the disease has progressed considerably. And if left untreated, high blood sugar over time can lead to blindness, kidney failure, heart disease, and nerve damage, particularly in the feet, and that can lead to infections and amputation. So most of us do know someone with diabetes, so how prevalent is this disease? So diabetes is actually a huge global health problem, and the number of people living with diabetes is increasing. The number of new uh, cases is increasing, even in young people. And so as a point of reference, at least 1 in 10 Canadians live with diabetes right now, and this number will continue to rise. What are the risk factors for developing diabetes? So some of the major risk factors we've already discussed, and these are things such as obesity, poor diet, lack of physical activity, smoking, excessive alcohol consumption, and family history. 
And if we look at how people live nowadays, it's really no wonder that the amount of diabetics are increasing. So people are exercising less, they're eating worse, and in general, developing poor habits at younger ages. So an interesting point here is that if we look at all these risk factors, we commonly know them as associated with heart disease as well, which we know is another major disease. And the biology connecting these two diseases is actually quite fascinating, and they're very interlinked, but that can be another podcast. So what laboratory tests would a doctor order to diagnose someone with diabetes? Our traditional test is to measure your blood sugar, and you may be familiar with this, such as when you come in the morning after fasting overnight, or after you drink that gross orange sugary drink. But the new kid on the block is a sugary protein called HbA1c. It's sort of like the Lexus of diabetes tests if blood sugar is like my dad's 1998 Corolla. <laughs> so I can understand why you would measure blood sugar since diabetes is a disorder of high blood sugar. But what does this protein have to do with diabetes? So HbA1c actually stands for hemoglobin A1c. So you know hemoglobin as that protein in our red blood cells that moves around oxygen and carbon dioxide, and it's also what makes our red blood cells red. So you can think of hemoglobin in our bloodstream sort of like cars on the highway. Now when blood sugar is consistently high for a long time, like in diabetes, some of the sugar tries to catch a ride on the hemoglobin. And we can measure this sugary hemoglobin in the lab and we call it the A1C hemoglobin, or HbA1C for short. So this would sort of be like picking out only the cars on the highway with a bumper sticker. And we have a few ways in the lab that we can measure hemoglobin A1C, and this actually becomes important for our story later on. So how high does your hemoglobin A1C have to be for your doctor to diagnose you with diabetes? So HbA1C is often reported as a percentage of your total hemoglobin. So that's the same as, say, measuring the fraction of cars with bumper stickers out of all the cars on the highway. The cutoff we traditionally use is 6.5% or greater to diagnose diabetes. Okay, so we now know that type 2 diabetes is a disorder of high blood sugar. It occurs when your cells are unresponsive to insulin. Your pancreas works on overdrive to try to control your blood sugar, but eventually tires out, causing your blood sugar levels to rise. Diagnosing diabetes is largely based on lab tests. Hemoglobin A1c can be thought of as sugary hemoglobin and is an effective marker for determining a patient's ability to control their blood sugar levels. Now let's get to your story. So you mentioned a patient's lab results looked like they had diabetes, but it turned out it really wasn't? This was actually both a very interesting and eye-opening case, uh, with a happy ending, might I add. So it happened when I was training to be a clinical biochemist. On that day, the technologist who was running the HbA1c test brought up a sample that was giving strange results. Now, without going into too much technical detail, HbA1c can be measured a few different ways, like I said previously. The hospital I was at at that time was measuring it using high-performance liquid chromatography, or HPLC for short. Essentially, what it does is that it separates a patient's A1c hemoglobin from all the other types of hemoglobin, and let's just call that the non-sugar fraction. And in this particular patient, we noticed that the non-sugar fraction looked strange because there was something causing an unreliable measurement of it. So whatever this thing or interferent was, it was causing a falsely lower non-sugar fraction. So how would that affect the hemoglobin A1c result? 
So remember that we report the A1C as a percentage of total hemoglobin. So say for example, you have 100 total hemoglobins and within that 100, five are bound to sugar or are the A1C hemoglobin. So this would give you an A1C result of 5% and you're happily non-diabetic. Now let's say something in your blood caused that 100 hemoglobins to be measured as 50 hemoglobins. Now with the still 5 hemoglobins still bound to sugar, your A1C has now become 10%, which by the way is severe diabetes. So in this case, the patient was told they had type 2 diabetes when they actually didn't. Exactly, because now we have an ultimately falsely increased HbA1c percentage, which moved the patient above the cutoff for diabetes. So what was your next step? Did you contact the physician at this point? Uh, so not at that point. We really wanted to do our due diligence and make sure that the result actually was inaccurate. So we double-checked the HbA1c result at other labs uh, that used different methods. And what we found was that the patient truly had a normal HbA1c. And this really solidified that our method was inaccurate for this patient. So what about the patient's history? Did they ever have a high hemoglobin A1c or were suspected of being pre-diabetic or diabetic? So that's another great question and the patient's history was actually the final piece to this puzzle. Looking at their previous lab results, there actually was never an indication of diabetes. However, about a year before our investigation, the HbA1c suddenly increased into the diabetic range for this patient. Coincidentally, that's when our lab also changed our HbA1c method. And so from all of this evidence, we were pretty much confident that there is something in that patient's blood that was causing that unreliable HbA1c result on our method, and that the patient was not actually diabetic. So this is when we finally met the patient and the physician, and we actually met them in person to explain essentially what I've described to you today. And it became very clear that everyone was very fortunate in several ways during the meeting. So first of all, the patient and the physician were both very grateful for the things that we had done to make sure that we gave them an accurate HbA1c result in the end. Uh, the patient had only begun lifestyle modifications and the physician had not started any drug treatments for the patient. So this of course could have been very detrimental as the patients would have been taking drugs unnecessarily, uh, of course along with all the side effects associated with being on drug treatments. And finally, because of all the evidence we had compiled, we actually had a plan for the patient and physician moving forward to ensure that they would get quality care from the lab. So what was the plan moving forward for this patient? So we suggested that moving forward, the patient should have their HbA1c tested elsewhere. We know that our method was not reliable for this patient, and we also strongly encourage the physician and patient that whichever lab they ultimately chose to get information on what method they were using to measure HbA1c. Well, that's certainly a happy ending and very fortunate that the physician started off with lifestyle changes for the patient. Had the laboratory not investigated this, the patient could have gone on to be on much more aggressive treatments. So again, really just reiterating the importance of the clinical lab in patient care. So what is the main takeaway message for our listeners? So for the listeners, I really want everyone to just know that behind the scenes, there is a lot of work that goes into each and every single lab result that you get from your physician. In this case of misdiagnosed diabetes, we really did play an important role in catching an error, correcting it, and coming up with a plan to make sure that the patient would be managed appropriately in the future. Thank you, Felix, for sharing your story with us today. My pleasure. Always happy to explain a little more about what the clinical lab does. 
So thank you all for listening to this episode of The Lab Report. So please let us know what you think by leaving us a review on iTunes, and you can email us any questions you have at epoc or epocc at cscc.ca. See you in the next episode.